The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, startups, markets, the economy, creatives. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. When I you know, decided that I was going to leave strategy consulting and figure out what I wanted to do next and then figuring out that that was going to be you know, making movies and writing stories, that to me was all stuff I liked to do when I was young. You know, so for me, it's so cheesy to say this, and I know people say it all the time. It's like, if you can find work that feels like play, it's a lot more fun to be at work. That's Naima Raza, showrunner, doc maker, and producer slash co-pilot of the hit podcast On with Kara Swisher. She and our other guests, the brains behind NPR Mageddon, the social media running joke turned dystopian audio series. No, really, stay tuned. It's actually fascinating. Well, they discuss the science and art of breaking through in multimedia's crowded 2020s. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining us from Manhattan, such a pleasure, Naima Raza. She is showrunner, producer, occasional co-host of the hit podcast On with Kara Swisher. It's on the New York Mag Vox Network. I mean, I lose track. Is that right? Yes, New York Magazine, Vox Media, Podcast Network. And you still have a hand in many projects over at the New York Times where you were with the Sway podcast with Kara Swisher. She rolled off of that last year, but you're kind of an inspector gadget of multimedia over there. You've done documentary work, audio work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, some print stuff. I like it all. You know, I think this, the format should fit the story. And often we think about it the other way around. I got to tell you what's fascinating to me. So I, I am a bit older than you. And in my time in New York, when I had these dreams of going off and having a public radio show, Mm -hmm. time was, I mean, before the full podcasting boom, you had to go kiss the ring of your public radio station, you know, do Mm. graveyard shift type things and everything. And who could imagine that a couple of people that I worked with, I think on weekend edition, they were known maybe as NPR mm-hmm. apostates, Theo Balcom and others, went <laughs> yes. to the New York Times and built from scratch a competitive product to NPR, if you will, with The Daily. And then now how the worm has turned is so many public radio stations have picked up The Daily. And you were part of that audio renaissance at The New York Times. But not not of The Daily. I cannot take, uh, I cannot take any credit for The Daily. I mean, I'm a big fan of The Daily. Um, and certainly they created something in a way that The Times has the ability to do and has done in video and started podcasts, the ability to create a category and like a kind of kind of change the cultural conversation very quickly. And yeah, Theo and others in the really did do that at the time. But Naima, it seems obvious to us right now with uh, the Times, which is unverified on Twitter, by the way, which lost its blue Twitter talking about. Oh, but yes, I know. Is it even the New York Times that's tweeting? It's really hard to know. I don't even know <laughs> if it is. But back then, back in the day when the radio tower was had the hegemony or linear TV had the hegemony, right. you cared about who you were affiliated with. But what 
I want to get to with this is kind of some element of free agency. Uh, no offense to the Times, yes. but I don't listen to you know many of Kara's podcasts because of the New York Times imprimatur. I listen to it because of Kara and you, or Kara and Professor Galloway, or Kara and the production right. team from Succession. We are in this period of kind of free agency. You combine that with the the, the tools that you have. Like you might be in a closet right now with a Sure mic, <laughs> and it sounds very <laughs> exactly. much like anybody could have done in in the most swank studio 10 15 years ago right i think that's the thing the the age of what you're calling you know the graveyard shifts and the the ring kissing i mean i'm I'm sure plenty of that is still happening around the world but thank god not all of us need to go through that process and that you can make a story you can tell a story you can figure out a way to build exceptional kind of journalism that said you know these institutions they provide a lot of legitimacy and i think you know kara swisher is kara swisher but she also did work at the washington post the new york times the wall street journal and a bunch of other places that have given her um, credibility and training, and I'm in the same boat, right? And me as well. There's that leap yeah. of faith that I asked her when we had Kara on the show a couple of years ago. If you want mm-hmm. to listen to the episode, we called it, wait for it, Swish Upon a Star. But I digress. Oh, my God. You know, God. I said, what about oh that God. fraught relationship <laughs> with Rupert Murdoch? Because all things digital, mm-hmm. back in my day when I listened to Walt Mossberg and Kara and the unbelievable access to the likes of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates at, yeah. at the ATD conference. And then when Rupert mm-hmm. didn't want to budge kind of on the portability of that, they create recode Recode gets acquired by Vox. And you have to have a significant confidence in your own abilities to move off with that leap of faith. I think about, you know, you've written quite a bit about your late father and the nudging that he's given mm-hmm. you and the encouragement yeah. to do that. But to a lot of us who came of age at the Times, at the Wall Street Journal, at Bloomberg, at Washington Post, yeah. or Time Inc., it's a terrifying leap of faith. Yeah, it, I understand that. I think it's changing generationally, right? I think p- people younger than me feel even more urgency, maybe. But I think that I observed this problem. Like when I was I, so early on, before I was at the Times, before I was uh, in journalism, I was at a small company called Vessel. This is after I graduated from Stanford from business school. And I was choosing between a job opportunity at Vessel, which was started by Jason Kyler, who had been at Hulu, had been early in Amazon, had been the CEO of Hulu, and then you know, has gone on to be now the no longer CEO of Warner Media, And she's between an offer from there and from Stripe, which was very, Stripe ended up being extremely successful. Vessel ended up being bought by Verizon and returning money to investors and some kind of aqua hire. Um, So, you know, I chose the wrong, like, choose your, choose your own adventure. I chose the wrong step, let's say, but I learned something at Vessel. I saw something that they were trying to disrupt YouTube. And they were trying to kind of revolutionize short format video. And Jason had this idea that people would pay subscription money for short format content if we could just get these creators to come put their content on Vessel first. And, you know, it didn't get borne out. I ended up leaving quite early, but my job was working with these creators. And what I saw that was so compelling was a generation of storytellers who were kind of from the beginning learning to own and direct their own content and their own brand in a way and now had the tools to do that, you know, much more than a microphone in a closet, but like had the editing tools, had the channels and the distribution network to do that. And the monetization was going to try not to swear because the NPR, the monetization was not, was not good, you know, $2.20 per thousand views, which you think about that relative to television. And so, but why did all this venture money follow that? I'm thinking about the pivot to video and all these other things and Quibi, yeah. the famous kind of <laughs> Waterloo oh, yeah, in short form, short form video. And YouTube has been out there. I mean, Google mm-hmm. bought it for a song. 
well, what, 15 years ago or right. something or more than that. But it's still elusive how you go about as a content creator and monetize kind of the fruits of what you've done. You need the intermediaries. You need somebody to front you in advance, be it a media company or a magazine publisher or a, a, you know, a podcasting parent, a Spotify or Wondery. Right. But it depends how you get discovered. Look at Billie Eilish and SoundCloud. Look at, you know, so there's, I think, yeah, you do need someone to come in and make it happen for you. I think the big question, like why, you asked a couple of questions there, but one is why did all this VC money come rush in? Well, I think we know now like how hot the market was, right? In that 2012 to 2022 era, there's that. I think that there's always been this kind of confuddled legacy media kind of chasing trying to figure out. So like A&E and Vice right, Media, right. right? Like, can we kind of acquire our way into a new kind of vanguard of media? Can we acquire ourselves into a younger generation of audience? But the shiny objects, the BuzzFeeds, the mediums, and I yeah. mean, you know, for a while there was a parlor game on Twitter is like, who's going to, gosh, I don't even remember the huge if true fusion fusion snaps up so and so fusion and then oh, fusion's yeah. bought by somebody exactly, else and yeah. then AOL Yahoo wraps up a ton of them and they end up with Verizon or HuffPost and I've lost track yeah. it's always like hope springs eternal with every new startup and pitch deck and now it's more kind mm-hmm. of semaphore and Puck and a handful of others kind of Puck, late stagers yeah. that can say we actually can make money and have an intimate relationship with our subscribers Yeah, I think the choices, and I don't know, I think there's obviously lots of people have different opinions on this in media. How many, you know, how many can there be? We're seeing this in the streaming wars, right? Can, you know, how many players can there end up being in the end of this game? Can there only be one like Highlander? Can there be many? How does it look? And I think that the answer in Puck and Semaphore are interesting categories. I'm a big fan of what John Kelly and team are trying to do at Puck and what Ben Smith and Justin Smith are trying to do at Semaphore, but they're playing in, you know, niche areas. I don't think they're trying to scale like they're not trying to be, my understanding as the New York Times, they're trying to offer a customized product. And we live in a world where like able to build something like that and see if there is a market. The, the problem becomes when you have an over expectation of scale. And I think VC money can do that to companies, right? Like you grow, you think you're going to have hockey stick growth. Well, you might not have hockey stick growth, but you might have a really good business that provides a really critical information product to people who really want it and are willing to pay a high dollar value. A you know, you guys pool. hit on it. You recently had Audie Cornish, formerly of NPR, on on. Yes. And they both won oh, an award. And they hit it off with each other. And Audie is, was recruited to CNN Plus, which was aborted very rapidly. But CNN, she's there yes. at CNN and she has a podcast and she discussed how she has much more of a voice. She's not really in the kind of rules and um, copy editing straitjacket that she was at NPR. Right. But she also got into the fact that there was all sorts of dumb money going around. There was this period where everyone mm-hmm. was a storyteller. Not only are you people like, in the words of Scott Galloway, can you featureize as a celebrity? I can have a podcast. I can be Dak Shepard and a handful of other celebs right. and that will scale. Or I could be, uh, you know, a, an outspoken scientist or atheist and I can have a Patreon channel mm-hmm. and that will scale. Or I could be a Joe Rogan and Spotify will hand me $100 million or even with or without exclusivity. A lot of that has changed on top of the fact that NPR has had these record layoffs recently. I think 10% of its staff. And it's the question, I know I have a long way of asking it the willingness to pay for that content is still very elusive it's one thing if it's all bunched up into a netflix or hbo max login it's another thing if you're Mm -hmm. asking for an a la carte commitment from subscribers and and so it's left to advertisers i think there are a lot of challenges look i mean i think there's more than five million podcasts 
right now out there. And there's over 100 million people who listen to podcasts just in the United States, right? So it's a huge market. Um, and I think what's so interesting about the end, I know nothing, I'm not, you know, I haven't done any reporting on the NPR layoffs, but I, what I thought was interesting is that they have cut podcasts, but not radio. And this is where it kind of gets into a, a bit of the controversy is the innovator's dilemma, which is kind of what you might yes. have covered. You know, I'm affiliated with a member station. It's still primarily a radio-centric right. business. And podcasting was shiny. They wanted to be part of that. But a lot of the most successful podcasts, to their mind, were the ones that were picked up by member stations. So it's it, right. is, it, it gets to the heart of kind of innovation and can you bring the pledge drive model into that? Right. But there's also two questions, right? One is monetization. But the first question before... Before you can even get is discovery. I think that the, in a world of five million podcasts with like you know I don't know I presume over fifty million episodes, right? That how do you find something? How do you cut through the noise? It puts such a burden, and we've seen this in television shows. We talk about how there's so much television. Well, there's over five hundred new television shows a year, you know, and I make film and TV as well. So I think that it's a trade-off because in discovery, it's almost like a pyramid. And I think companies like Patreon have helped kind of figure out this new, like the tiers of fandom, right? There's kind of a base, you know, you want to bring a bunch of people in and people listen to you casually, listen, kind of check it out, like a guest, don't like a guest, they come in. Then there are kind of regular fans who tune in maybe for every episode. Then there are devoted fans, right? People who not just tune in, but also maybe follow you elsewhere, want to know what else you write, want to know what else you think, you know? And then maybe there's a couple levels, then you get to what Jason Kyler used to call crawl over glass <laughs> fans, which right. is a little bit like creepy uh, term, but but his point being people who will like turn up to the concert, buy the t-shirt, do everything, you know, like go, and that's the Patreon level. Like we have to figure out ways to, you know, how do you have enough content that is out there to create a wide kind of top of the funnel, but also create something that's so compelling and so resonant with some some people, not everybody, but some people that you're going to be able to kind of keep investing in your brand and keep making content that is cutting edge and is different if you want to try new things, you know? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Naima Raza. She is showrunner, producer, oftentimes co-host of New York Mag and Vox on podcast with Kara Swisher was a hit pod. Kara was recently profiled in Vanity Fair. You know, the old king of all media type reference given to Howard Stern. There's a there's certainly kind of a regency to Kara Swisher <laughs> because she's omniscient. They, like I find mm -hmm. myself, you know, eagerly like watching Succession and then HBO picks her mm -hmm. to have the Succession pod, which is kind of a side dish to everything else she does, primarily with you, alternately with, you know, Professor Galloway, Scott Galloway, which I, I originally mm -hmm. came to that through Recode and then when she went to Sway and then now on. And that, that right. just underscores the point that I travel with her. I don't know if I'm a crawl out of glass mm -hmm. fan <laughs> crawl, crawl over, over glass, glass bed, but I would certainly feel lost if, you know, I woke up with insomnia one morning and Kara Swisher wasn't on Spotify. Well, good for you. She makes like 15 things yeah. a week, Robin. It's all for you. Um, yeah, there, I mean, you followed her brand. She has built that business. I think that, I think the question is, how do you keep innovating? And that's what she has been able to do. I think what, the reason I like working with Karen, I first met her when yeah, I was a video us. journalist at the Times. So I met her when I was a video journalist at the Times. This must've been 2019. And, um, she was uh, going to be on camera for a short video I was doing the interviews for, I was producing and, and senior producing and interviewing for. And Kara comes in and I'd been introduced to her over text and I told her, you know, like, don't wear anything wacky in terms of print. And are you going to wear your sunglasses or not? Because the guy needs to light accordingly. And, um, and she sends me back like 
a gif of Seinfeld wearing a ruffled <laughs> white shirt. And I'm like, who is this woman? What is this? And I was familiar with Kara's reporting because I went to Stanford in 2012 and had obviously been a big reader of Recode, et cetera. Um, so she came in and we kind of had a funny exchange where she wanted to wear the sunglasses on camera and we weren't lit for it because I wasn't informed she would be. So, you know, she couldn't wear the sunglasses on camera and we got to know each other then. And when the piece came out, it was about online privacy and uh, it was done with my colleagues, Adam Westbrook and, and Andrew Blackwell at the Times. She was like, well, this is really dire. I'm like, well, Kara, like privacy on the internet's really dire. And that kind of started a conversation that when she came and brought her podcast to the Times in 2020, the podcast that became Sway, I was off doing a TV series with CBS and Richard Linklater and my writing partner for film and TV, um, Bill Gutentag. And I was a contributor at the time. So when she was coming back in, I thought, well, a couple things. One, it's summer of 2020. I don't know how much I'm going to be filming because of the pandemic. So all of a sudden, audio became an extremely interesting format to me that I had been a deep consumer of for so long, but had not made before. And two, really clicked with Kara. We had similar interests. So I think we both kind of have lived in the worlds of Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Washington. We both have like a kind of interest in power and we both are kind of like to your earlier point about like kissing rings and graveyard shifts like we we both like work late at night but we don't kiss a lot of rings and so we got along really well so i helped her launch the show at sway eventually became the senior editor overseeing that show the showrunner of that show at the new york times and yeah and we've been working together since so i guess it's like our three-year anniversary actually i can ask you because you're candid in many of your writings you write about you write about your sure. family life, about dating, about exercising and everything. There wasn't this intimidation mm -hmm. factor in that you were gonna your voice was gonna be in there. You weren't gonna be a Wizard of Oz character behind the scenes. There were times that you'd have to volley the serve with her. Yeah. Well, this is interesting because that's been the new show, right? On Sway, we would have Kara, like Kara read these tops that the, you probably remember them. She would kind of say like, here is, you know, today I want to talk to blah, 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 blah. And it was much more NPR-y uh, or, you know, more, more um, kind of tightened in. And so this was an innovation when we brought the show over to the New York Magazine and Vox, Kara and I were like, how do we make this different? My thing is, how do we make it more you? And she's just more natural in conversation. Now, we then thought about all the different ways to get it out. And Hannah Rosen, who is the editorial director at New York Magazine for podcasts, was like, well, it needs to be you, Naima, because you guys have a back and forth in this way. And Kara also kind of wanted wow. me to be a character on the show. And so it ended up kind of organically happening. But we didn't know weeks before we launched that that was going to be the format. Probably we decided weeks before it launched that I was going to be a voice with her. And it's it's been, you know, we have a back and forth relationship because producers and talent need to have a back and forth relationship, right? And so I think you get to experience some of that on the air where we don't always agree and where, but no, it doesn't, does it intimidate me? No, she doesn't intimidate me <laughs> because Robin, like I worked for a while in political reform and consulting all over the world, including in Libya. So, like, I've encountered the likes of Muammar Gaddafi, who also liked wearing sunglasses. I think Kara would love that description, who also yes. liked wearing sunglasses. Naima Raza, I actually want to I wanna hub and spoke off of the wonderful essay you wrote about your late father. You called him your Abu. Oh, and I read you. that last summer. And I'm thinking about my father, who's in his mid-80s and he's ailing. But were you able to yeah. talk with him about, I mean, one, how immigrant parents would size, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. It took him a while mm -hmm. to understand. You have failed, well, Robin. It, it took him a while to understand <laughs> that I went to business school yes. and became a journalist as mm -hmm. well. But did you, once he digested what you had become, were you polling him as to, Dad, I might leave this project at the New York Times and maybe stay as a contributor at the New York Times, but he was all in on what you were doing? I think it was interesting. You know, my father, so 
my dad was a little bit, I, I think he was like more innovative in some ways than like the typical, like that what you see as the screen dad on, you know, TV shows about immigrants, let's say. But my dad w- was, you know, born in the 1930s, I was 50 when I was born. And he was born in pre-partition India. And, and so he was born, you know, and then the family migrated many times. And he came to the U.S. as a Fulbright in the 1950s. Actually, I remember when I saw, saw the film Green Book, I told my wow. dad, like, do you know what Green Book is? Because I my reference to Green Book is, is Gaddafi's book, Green mm. Book, which is a book in Libya. But his he, he was like, no, no, I know. I used to travel with that when I was in the States because it was where people of color could stay in hostels, oh, wow. which it was to me shocking to imagine that my dad was doing that. But he, you know, had a long career at the World Bank and in international development. And so he, I just like grew up with a bigger world because of him. You know, I feel really lucky to have had the parents I had because it gave me a big sense of the world. I didn't have a lot of people or family friends who were artists per se. There were some, but not many. There's some journalists, but not many. And so I had a more unconventional career path, but my dad has always been, and it, it really matters, I think, in cultures like obviously you're Persian. My dad lived in Iran for a while, by the way, Um, but I'm Pakistani and it really matters, you know, what the men in your life kind of allow in those societies in some way. Like we talk about Malala. Well, Malala's dad is also someone who really believed in sending his daughter to education. And my dad was very much like that. Um, You know, when people ask him, like, aren't you worried about your daughter not being married? He's like, why? Some of the happiest days of my life were when I wasn't married, which obviously made made my mother thrilled. But uh, but, you know, he he was more open minded in that sense. That said, he still, even despite all this, was very worried about when I graduated from Kennedy School and Stanford Business School, I went to these fancy degrees and and then told him that I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. He was like, huh? But you know <laughs> how my relatives was... in Irangelis reacted. Let me just do the quick impersonation for you. He's like, yeah, please so do. So journalist, does it pay? Like, is it on commission? Why you don't buy a gas <laughs> station? I told your mother. You know, and uh, it's like East Coast talking to West Coast. It just doesn't jive out. And occasionally they'll see me on TV and it's like, good for you. But why you don't buy a gas station, Farzad? You know. (laughs) Do you regret not buying a gas station? No, I don't regret not taking the LSAT. I'm about (laughs) to go to my 25th college reunion. And there's an unopened Princeton Review LSAT kit from 1998. And it was always there break in case of emergency. And I'm thinking about Audie Cornish's interview on on, on, and and how could you actually regret not going to law school because that was in our immigrant sense at least that's what you do after a respectable college degree that's what you do by the way i've taken the lsats i was admitted to law school not once but twice but i didn't go and i it's my great regret and i intend to one day get a law degree because i think in this country it is actually I, i think what audie's point was is that it's kind of fundamental. It's how the power in this country, if you think about how change happens, whether it's seatbelts or or tobacco, and eventually perhaps social media, like how will it happen? It will happen through courts. It will happen through laws. This country is run by lawyers in a way that countries where I grew up were not. And so there is a power. I, I do think if you can, if you have the willpower to go to law school and not become a lawyer, that's a very good thing. But the question becomes like, you know, how do you get away from inertia, which comes back to the whole thing we were talking about earlier? Like, how do you leave a place like the New York Times and start your own thing? You know, it all comes back to having the power to say, okay, I'm going to do something different even, but but gain the skills along the I way. I always like to say that you could either take your anxiety mm-hmm. and trauma in a lump sum payment, or you can amortize it over 
however many years at a job that you hate and a, a life that makes you miserable. And you and I know so yeah. many consultants and, and billable hours people who are doing that and yeah. even VCs. And so it's really instructive to share notes, especially from kind of the immigrant perspective, where there's always that series of arrows over your head. What are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you going? When are you getting married? It really right. resonates in all of your writing and in the voice that you bring to the show. Yeah, I think that, and, and, I, and I often try to like in the piece about my father, you know, about his passing, I was trying to try to share just like things I've learned in, in case they're kind of interesting to other people. And um, it's always heartening to know when they are. But in the case of my father, I was writing about, you know, my whole life, he's like, why don't you spend more time with your cousins, your uncle, you're in this random city, you know, doing work. Why don't you go for lunch with my third cousin once removed? I'm like, what? I don't have time for that. You know, and even when I was a kid and under my parents' charge all times, I, I did have those relationships. But growing up as an adult, I lost a lot right. of those, right? I picked and chose. I had the more kind of Western notion of chosen family. And and what I realized after my father's passing is like the people who showed up and the familiarity and the knowledge, the fact that I could still be present with my father after his death through these extended relationships that I had been kind of shunning in a way, you know, in the kind of glory of my 20s. To me, there's a lot of wisdom in some of it. And I think what we have the advantage of is like, we get to live between all these worlds and we get to create a life that, you know, and it's not stationary. You ask like, when your parents think about what you become, I'm like, well, what I'm becoming, because what I am now is probably not what I'm going to be in four years you know, just looking at past performance. I encourage all of our listeners to read that essay in the New York Times. My father's last gift to me came after his death. It was published in June of 2022. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, NPR One, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including an especially Apple podcast, the link call your girlfriend is fulldradio.com again fulldradio.com shout out to our radio listeners on npr member station wvtf radio iq holler if you too would like us on your air after all my dms are always open if you are just joining us, my esteemed guest is Naima Raza. She is the showrunner, executive producer, oftentimes co-host of On with Kara Swisher, the hit podcast from the New York Mag Vox Media Network. In the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, I want you to go back, and I know this sounds a little cliche, mm -hmm. but I, I, I certainly take this to heart. Talk to that overburdened, overstacked, over-extracurricular college senior that was you at hmm. Georgetown and all those other people right now who are graduating into the great wide open. There's clearly weakness in tech. There are layoffs all across media uh, in audio. I mean, that certainly that podcast bubble has burst the latest podcast bubble, but there's also hope and opportunity. You as a really mm -hmm. young person parachuted into the New York times, you have roles with the Tribeca film festival with CBS. You had a very influential Hollywood centric professor at Stanford's graduate school of business. You've become quite omnivorous and you have projects everywhere. Mm. How, what kind of wisdom would you impart out of that to students? Oh my gosh, I don't know, wisdom. And I, I should say, yes, I've had a film at Tribeca Film Festival and, and, and done a TV show for CBS, but never worked for either. Um, I think what I would say, it's really weird advice, but I would listen to the part of yourself that is, that's like a kid, honestly. I mean, the things you liked doing when you were a kid that you felt were playful and fun and you enjoyed are probably still to some extent what you enjoy doing as an adult. And I think when I, you know, decided that I was going to leave strategy consulting and become, you know, and, and figure out what I wanted to do next and then figuring out that that was going to be 
you know, making movies and writing stories and, and like shining a light on other people's like stories through documentary. That to me was all stuff I liked to do when I was young. You know, so for me, it's so cheesy to say this. And I know people say it all the time. It's like, if you can find work that feels like play, it's a lot more fun to be at work. And so I think about that. It's a really tough time right now to come in to the world and kind of look around and say, you know, there isn't, it's kind of exciting that, you know, we've seen the flaws in a lot of these industries. We've seen the flaws in the financial sector. It certainly isn't like what it was in 2006, seven when I was graduating. We've seen the overheating of Silicon Valley and some of the challenges that tech companies are facing, although they're now seeing a little bit of bounce back. And so like nothing is a golden road to anywhere. It's better you kind of chart your own path and then be patient. Don't think that you're going to run things from day one. I know you could listen to an episode like this and be like, I'm going to you know, charge forward. I think lay the tracks to own your own IP, to own your own work, to have flexibility on where you do it. Well, yeah, when Kara, when Kara urges people, she said it with some colorful language in Vanity Fair, if you don't understand the mm-hmm. business side as a journalist, you're kind of screwed. And I, I, yeah. I struggle with that because I've always aspired to not be a loss leader, right? You can't swing from one vine to another. Ad pages are up, ad pages are down. Oh, this is all done. Pivot yeah. to video. Oh, wait, pivot to podcast. Pivot to Patreon. <laughs> pivot to it's exhausting, pivot to right? Substack. Yeah. Um, you know, the other metaphor is like every oasis in the desert keeps drying and so the herd moves on to something else and yet we stick around and yet the industry finds a way to transmogrify and continue making great content and yet there are people like you who are willing to take at least initially a vow of poverty and a vow of hustling to make content because it it makes your heart warm yeah but I think that you can build your own you the reason we can't oh vine swinging that's what it was so this idea look I mean the entire like a newsroom has many different divisions many different and they have to be able to cross subsidize each other and allow for innovation and experimentation right we have to get out a metro desk has to get out x stories a day and the investigative unit is getting out x stories a year right and so I think there's an opportunity for anyone to be good but to anyone to do what they want to do. The trick is to do what you're actually good at and what you're going to sustain in. You can't do something because it's popular. And you can't just, you know, I I think that Kara's right. You can't just be an artist anymore. You have to at least have some kind of sense of the business side. Now, you could choose you don't want to deal with it. Like when I work on film and TV projects, I don't want to necessarily go back and forth with the studio on the economics of my deal. I want a representative to do that so that I can focus my conversation with them on the creative aspects. But... You do need to know what your line is because no one is going to advocate for you better than you can if you can understand what the situation is. And it takes a while. You don't own your stuff from day one, but you can build your own body of work in parallel to kind of, you know, creating a body of work for a bigger publication. And you have to figure out ways to do that and carve out time. And listening to something the other day where the person said, bring your mind to it, bring your grind to it. I think it was like a terrible workout class. But I appreciated that. And I think that's true. If you bring your mind to something, you bring your grind to something, you probably can achieve it. I'm amazed, actually, the fact that you were able to book the the CEO of Parlor. I kind of, you know, in the wake Mm -hmm. of January 6th or Chris Licht with Kara Swift as he was under the gun at at CNN and other places. There are people who realize that's a date that you cannot miss. I mean, you've seen recent obituary stuff about Barbara Walters and you never wanted to miss Mm -hmm. that or Charlie Rose in his heyday pre-scandal. People still, you know, they realize they'll be within the firing line with Kara, but it's still one of the more aspirational pods to go on. 
And that's something mm-hmm. that yeah. I mean, even John Stewart will call in and and you know wish her well. You can get various people to come on. I'm amazed at how multi-chromatic the guest list has been since you've moved on from the New York Times. Yeah. Yes, and, and the Times obviously help with that a lot. And and I think Parlor, look, that's a really important one because on that day, January 6th, as, as everything was happening at the Capitol and we were watching it, I mean, the, the guest was meant to be Brian Cranston talking about his Showtime show, the, Your Honor, which was a great episode, but really not appropriate for the time. And, and Parlor had been something that had been on our radar. And so a colleague of mine helped me find the phone number of the Parlor PR people and they got me on. I was on the phone with senior executive at Parlor for an hour explaining why, you know, the story was going to be told tomorrow. And it was important that their voice be part of the story, right? And it was the next day he wrote me and said, it was, as you promised, like, I think he said something to the extent of it was tough and fair, right? But he kind of knew what he was walking into. And the CEO of Parler came on and was asked tough questions about what he was doing and where if he was abdicating his responsibility as a social media platform. That's the kind of like newsmaking, like move the needle journalism that I'm really proud of. And it requires talking to people you do not dis- you do not agree mm. with, which I think is something that we are losing appetite for. And that it ties back to what we were talking about earlier when there's this proliferation of all these different types of media organizations. And you can really select your own media diet, your own media plate, and pick and choose the stories you want to hear, read, see. Being able to create what audio has the ability to do is conversation and you can have disagreement and you can have time for that disagreement to air out. And I think it's really important to be able to have conversations like the one that we were able to you know, persuade John Mates to come on and have on Sway with Kara, where you learn something. You learn something of why he created that platform, what Trump supporters see as their reality. You learn something about how urgent and what was not factual in what he was saying. There were various times where Kara's like, that's not true because we fact check, right? It's not true what he was saying. Um, and then Apple learned something, right? Apple learned that he did not believe he had any responsibility and therefore the platform was kicked off of Apple's app store, right? So people learn something and that that can only happen if you confront ideas that are different to what you already know and think. Naima Raza, star showrunner. If you don't mind me saying in a very self-serving way, I oh. love the curation element of full disclosures. My listeners trust me and kind of, wow, this is a great portfolio example. It's a name you might, you probably know. If you don't know, it's going to be a huge name in service of multimedia storytelling. You are the showrunner with On, Kara Swisher, uh, with the New York Magazine Vox Media Network. You're a documentary maker. You have a hand in so mm-hmm. many various things that don't necessarily correlate. And it, it seems at least from afar, you get to pursue your passion. So hats off to you. And please come back on. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate you and love your show. (laughs) Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe and tell everyone. I mean, call your girlfriend. You can catch us on Radio IQ, the NPR member station across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. We are in Ventura County. We are in Asheville, North Carolina. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, I was talking to Naima Raza. She produces and co-hosts On with Kara Swisher, the hit pod. She's a talent from New York Times Opinion, the Tribeca Film Festival, CBS TV Studios, 
really just figured her way around the industry and has become a star name in no time at all. I would say it took a bit longer for my next guests. Uh, they are joining me from a pre-apocalyptic Los Angeles. Uh, Brian Keithley and Peter Podgurski. These are the brains behind NPR Mageddon. Uh, you know this handle from Twitter, which spoofs up NPR characters. Some voices out there have said that it's a higher honor than a Peabody or a Pulitzer, but there's clearly been a through line to this. There was a reason why they were putting these crumbs out for the better part of a decade, because this was now released as a deluxe audio series uh, this past January. Did I begin to explain it correctly, gentlemen? That's absolutely correct. That was that was fantastic. Either the decade kind of hurt. That could have hurt my feelings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, to be fair, I mean, there's a there was a pandemic in there. So uh, farm to table these things. Yeah, take we get a like while. a three year coupon on. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we get a coupon. You get a coupon. It's like NCAA eligibility. We'll give you two extra years of eligibility. It was actually eight years. And I know you because you guys gave me an NPR again. I don't know what you did. You put me as some buff character with my head and triple chins and a chain-wielding person. And I was like, where is this all headed? Is this a couple of guys oh, you were a and an NPR members? I was a beefcake, which you know as I am in real life as a dad bod. But you guys, like, I, I kept thinking to myself when this went up and when I was seeing other people like Ari Shapiro and – Various characters, big and small. To what end? Is this just a couple guys having fun at an NPR member station? But now I get it. You were setting up clearly some clout on Twitter and some understanding and some pre-publicity for this brilliant idea you have. The series describes national post-apocalyptic radio in a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles. And I, I mean, you guys explain the rest. Um, yeah, well, like when we first started... I got the idea to do NPR again. Uh, my friend Jackson Lansing, who's a comic book uh, writer, he told me about this podcast called Night Vale to listen to. And it's a very, very popular podcast. And it's sort of creepy and it's HP Lovecrafty. And I listened to it and I thought it was really good. But I thought like the scope was very small and is very producible. So it was like one actor talking and there was some creepy music and it was all very good. And I thought, could we make this a lot bigger and a little bit more to my taste? So to make like like almost like an 80s action movie, just like, a, and a lot of big sounding. And I called up Brian and I said, I think we could make like a, a post-apocalyptic kind of public radio kind of show. And then like he said... <laughs> About five or seven seconds later, I said, oh, you mean like an NPR Mageddon? And, and, thus, and thus the legend was born. And then I was like, oh, no. Because I, I, I was sitting there thinking about this idea for like the better part of a couple hours. And then like he thought about it for all of seven seconds and was like, oh, you mean like NPR Mageddon? And I was like, yeah, that's the title, huh? And then we were, we were off to the races. I mean, yeah, let me describe this from LAist, which I believe is now linked to, what is it, owned by KPCC or KCRW? I just heard K it. KPCC became the LAist, so they have morphed. LAist. Yeah. So, so yeah. here, let me let me quote from them. If you're not already familiar with the Twitter account NPR again, and here's a brief tutorial. Imagine the heads of public radio reporters, editors, hosts, and other staff photoshopped onto the bodies of sci-fi superheroes. Or just check out the examples in this story. We're holding weapons, crashing through walls, and just generally flexing impressive muscles that aren't our own. For public media folk getting NPR Mageddon, it's kind of a rite of passage. I'm quoting Jackie Fortier, the senior health reporter. Uh, I want this more than a Pulitzer. Well, she got uh, it, too. Like uh, after, after I read that, I felt like, oh, well, I better get her one. <laughs> so I did. I mean, Sharon McNary, they put her headshot in 2015 on an image of Ellen Ripley from Alien holding a massive gun. 
Uh, and, and Peter, you said, I think journalists are quite heroic. They speak truth to power. If you're confronting power all the time, you have to be fairly strong. Oh, shucks. Yeah, you were right. Like, we were trying to build up this Twitter presence before we released our audio series. And so, as like a kind of a proof of concept, I just dolled up like a, an Ira Glass on Mad Max photo. And I showed it to Brian. I go, oh, that's kind of funny, you know. And I tweeted it out. And I said, you know, I can, I can kind of, I'm pretty good at Photoshop. I can kind of make these. <laughs> and, and, and just started following a lot of people and started tweeting it out. And pretty early on, uh, some of the NPR reporters really liked it. Uh, Tamara Keith was really supportive. I'm Tamara Keith. Yeah. I'm Tamara Keith. Yeah, Tamara Keith. Like, we had a Tamara Keith week where we basically Photoshopped Tamara <laughs> Keith every week on her birth, uh, until her birthday landed on Friday. <laughs> That's So, crazy. like, she's, Tamara Keith is the most NPR mageddon public radio reporter i i think the first response was probably what the heck is this but then i they slowly warmed as as they saw what we were doing and kind of valorizing uh these journalists so i i think it kind of took off slowly but it did take off but most people don't I, understand it they're like what is this what is this angle what are you doing right it doesn't make like people are like, i think this is good <laughs> yeah we don't like making sense so yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let me take you back to your backgrounds here. So, Brian, you say, intending to become a video game designer, you entered the engineering school of WashU in St. Louis. When Calc 3 and differential equations became too soul-crushing, you jumped ship to the liberal arts major. You're very, you're very honest about things being soul-crushing. So working full-time <laughs> graveyard shift for an online poker site at the height of Hold'em craze. Peter, I'm thinking about you... Um, <laughs> Jeez. In between writing spec scripts, you've had lots of odd jobs in the entertainment industry. Many of them involved getting coffee, but sometimes you'd get more glamorous assignments like blocking parking spaces for director Nicole Holofcener or being Steve Gutenberg's foot double in the sci-fi original La Valanchula. La Valanchula. Uh, yeah, Mike Mendez's La Valanchula, sci-fi original. So I think one of the common threads with so many of our guests is that frustration, whether you take a comedian working at an investment bank or people kind of in their the, the quarter life crisis and what the heck am I doing and I want do I want to be at this desk and how do I break through especially when it's not about getting I mean just look at NPR look at TV networks and everything and they've just been crushed into bits and pieces over the past decade and the creator economy and YouTube and Vimeo and Netflix and everybody else it's both emboldening and terrifying at the same time because there's no set path you know to quote the late Tom Petty into the great wide open, a rebel without a clue. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of wrapped up in our fanciful, you know, Los Angeles, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of lost souls in Los Angeles. But yeah, I mean, I think it was a, a, you know, the podcast format became a way for us to escape the confines of needing, you know, uh, $3 million to begin to start to make a feature film or something like that. Like, uh, we didn't have to limit our imagination and our love of sci-fi and fantasy and mutants and you know all sorts of things uh, when we are in the audio format because we had the tools, we had the talent and the technology to build a credible world in an audio space. That is direct to consumer as opposed in the past where, I don't know, I mean, I'm thinking swimming with sharks and various other ways you kind of have to kiss the ring and pay your dues and go through agency work and grunt work and SAG-AFTRA minimums and everything to get a big break with sci-fi. I mean, I, I think you did mention, was it J.J. Abrams somewhere? I mean, some of the big names that are bandied about, like you could say I was involved with Lost Season 2 and then I got my big break with Sharknado 3. I, I just don't know how it works in the world of kind of 
animation, sci-fi, and the worlds that you guys occupy, somewhere between animation and the radio and podcast storytelling worlds? Well, I think podcasting, in some people's minds, is kind of what we're doing right now, right? It's uh, you interview us, we talk to you, and that's kind of what people have in mind when they think about a podcast. But we're doing an audio series, like a radio drama. Radio drama kind of sounds old-timey, old right? Like The Shadow or something. But we're doing this audio series. So it's, it's an interesting medium because it's really, really old. And uh, like, are you familiar with like Nassim Taleb's idea of yes, Lindy? Of course. Yeah. So yes. like, I think what what drew me to this was like saying, all right, even if we'll make this thing, right, and we'll try to make it Lindy, like, so we'll try not to make it a topical thing, you know? We'll try to like, it's more about ideas, and it's in a format that is older than television, and you know, you can go on YouTube right now and find the Shadow serial, and you know, it'll be eleven hours of the Shadow. There's like, you know half a million views. People are still interested in the shadow. So we thought, well, the investment of time and treasure to make this thing, it, it has the possibility of still mattering a hundred years from now. And that's appealing to me. And we don't have to compromise. We don't have to put up with cardboard walls on our film set. You know, like we can make it all sound like solid gold. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Brian Keithley and Peter Podgurski. They are the brains behind NPR Mageddon, which has morphed from a an aspirational Twitter handle that mocks up public radio figures as kind of dystopian action heroes into a 10-episode podcast series that reimagines L.A. as Lost Angeles. I'm quoting LAist. A horrible place to live in a dystopian, polluted, corrupt future. It's a fake radio show with imagined sponsors mostly focused on surviving. Like this message for a water purification company. NPR Mageddon is made possible with support from Ideal Water Purification. Our team of highly skilled water technicians personally sample every batch of Ideal Water, making sure there's just enough bleach to kill the germs without killing our customers. Due to less than ideal circumstances, we do have a number of open positions, like a lot. So apply today! Yeah, and that was voiced by none other than Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys who's one of our announcers on NPR Mageddon. How did you get so Fred Willard, the late Fred Willard? I'm thinking Fred Willard and Tazon Day. Some people might remember from at least 10 years ago, Chocolate Rain, Tazon Day. I have to say it's a multi-chromatic cast of characters that you got. That's an unusual bands. pairing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like... You're not going to get that anywhere else. Yeah. No, you won't. I, I, and I think we tried to, when you're writing this, we're like, who could we possibly get that's really, really cool and just ask him if they do it. We'd be writing towards some of these actors sometimes. Like we, we wrote towards Fred Willard with the intention of like, all right, we're going to get Fred Willard. I, I, and I think that was part of the secret sauce to actually getting Fred Willard is to write with him in mind, you know, and sort of a smooth con man. And I think he saw sort of himself and his ability to do that part extremely well, which he, which he did. He absolutely knocked it out of it the was park. Just a, it was a dream come true to like, like Fred Willard shows up and we're like, wow, it's Fred Willard. And he's such a pro. Like, he had read all the stuff, and, like, he knew his angles. We recorded him, like, twice, because just for safety, for technical reasons, but... Yeah, basically a one-take wonder, so... Yeah, and so amazing. in some ways, we were like, oh, no, we want to keep hanging out with you, but uh, you did a great job, and you're done, so thanks, Fred Willard. <laughs> uh, guys, I'm going to let you cue up that scene with Fred Willard, if you could describe it here. Yeah, I can, I can set it up. So Fred Willard plays... Fred Willard, so we, we have him play um, himself, or a version of himself, uh, and he's a spokesman for a sort of dystopian, terrible, omnipotent company called Betatech. 
And so he's uh, tasked with going on the uh, radio and sort of uh, justifying the corporation's terrible behavior in some very clever ways. So in this particular sketch, he's here to speak to my character, the host, Brian Garcia McMillan Keithley, about something called the Internet of Drugs and how they can use addiction, drug addiction, among the populace to sort of uh, expand Betatech's uh, coffers, but while doing it in a way that sounds effective until you really dig down into it, and it's terrible. Let's, let's listen to it. Alternative labor innovations are but one bullet in Betatech's gun for future-proofing the Los Angeles of tomorrow. Fred, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. I understand Betatech's latest initiative is tackling a very serious problem. Yes, Brian. Drug abuse, opium, cocaine, and drip dealers have become huge problems in our fair city. And in the name of public well-being, we intend to stamp them out. Now, is that true, or is this just more corporate speak? Corporate speak? Listen, individually, 100% of those words are true. Individually? Yes, opium, cocaine, and drip are huge problems in our fair city. Do you agree with me? Can I get you to go there? Yes, of course. And can you tell me why? Jonesing, side effects, withdrawals? You're so close. The problem isn't drugs. Drugs make you feel great. Jonesing doesn't happen when you're on drugs. Side effects don't matter when you're on drugs. And withdrawals, Brian, can't happen when you're on drugs. Exactly. It's all the stuff that happens in between. When you're not on drugs, that's when it gets bad. Am I right? No. Hear me out. At Betatech, we're committed to making people happy. Drugs are a reliable source of happiness. So why not create an internet of drugs? What's an internet? It doesn't matter. All that matters is we're buying up and connecting small business distribution facilities. I got to say, you know, we get down to the brass tacks of financing and, and doing these things. Is it just a, how did you fundraise for this? Or what did you do? Or what did it cost? Could we get into uh, the particulars? Because Absolutely, yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you even start? Well, uh, we both went to USC Film School. And I know a lot about sound uh, from USC Film School. So I, I, I was the recordist and the editor, the sound designer. And so that's just all time. That's the time cost. I mean, like, have you ever heard of the, the good, fast, cheap triangle? Are you familiar with that concept? No, but I'm thinking of Silicon Valley. What is it? The conjoining triangles of success or uh, something? So, but go so, explain so, it to me. So you, if you imagine a triangle, on one side it says good. On one corner it says good. On one corner it says fast. And on one corner it says cheap. So you can make something that is fast and cheap, but it won't be good. You can make something um, good and cheap but and it won't be fast cheap good and cheap but it won't be I've fast i've heard this yeah. about about life partners but are you know are, <laughs> i've heard i've heard it with respect to people who are good looking versus you know deranged or something or issues you can't have all three so so you mentioned how long it took us to make and i think the thing that we paid to fund it was time time was our money time was our money so we we, we changed basically money for time because if we were to make this in a year i think it would have been incredibly expensive because you have to like get people and like like we couldn't work around people's schedule. Yeah, this is something we did uh, on weekends every uh, you know every other weekend type of thing. Like this came together very slowly when our friends happened to be available to lend their talents to the show. So it it came about very organically and very slowly. <laughs> so yeah, so if you want something to not cost money, you can pay with time sometimes. 
So this is chock full of sweat and time equity. What are you doing in the meantime to pay the bills in Los Angeles, in SoCal? Uh, well, I um, did follow the dream of being a video game designer. So I do uh, senior technical design work for a company called Wonderstorm. So I'm still in the business of making video games to pay the bills. Yeah, and I, I'm a freelance editor, videographer, and I make, I make promos. I'm a, also a promo producer, writer. I've had just a lot of just bizarre jobs in the industry, and that's where I met a lot of these people that are in NPR Mageddon is just you know on film sets and just working. And what about the exchange of ideas with the people you flattered across member stations and the Tamara Keats of the world? And you clearly get a lot of retweetage. Again, I'd imagine you guys as a couple of maybe bored producers at an NPR member station. But <laughs> when you do things like this and you mock them up and they retweet it and people get in touch with you, it buys you a lot of publicity runway. Yeah, well, I, uh, I was very into like, have you ever heard of this book Persuasion by uh, Cialdini? Yes. So part of the Twitter was part of like, all right, I, I have this book, Persuasion, and it says like, you need things to be persuasive, you need things like social proof. So if people from NPR like us, I got some social proof, right? And their authority transferred to me and I, it makes us powerful in a way, like, you know, in, in your mind. And then we pass it, pass it back by making them look cool in a, in a Photoshop, right? And, you, right, you know, right. and we know, we, and, and it's kind of a mutual like, like, listen, we like you. And I think on Twitter, most people don't get, hey, I like you, reporter. Most people, most reporters probably get, hey, I don't like you, <laughs> you know? And so like, so here's somebody, because uh, another reason why people go on Twitter is they want to be seen and have people recognize their brilliance. Well, okay, I'll recognize your brilliance. I'll say you're really cool, you know, and, and super fun. And, and another um, like principle of persuasion is like commitment and consistency. So I would just consistently Photoshop these various people. And it started out as like, this is really weird and we don't know if we like this or not until it began, no, 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 we like this and this is cool. But it kind of took a while for people to kind of get on board with what we were doing. To the point that people then asked to be npr mageddon you know, so to speak. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, we get like DMs like, oh, this person like is retiring next week. They would absolutely love to get npr mageddon And I'm like, yeah, sure. That sounds super fun. And so had they called you into anything like All Things Considered or Morning Edition and kind of life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art, back and forth, back and forth? Or have they just kept their distance? Well, we were, we were on uh, like uh, Sharon McNary from KPCC uh, asked to do a story about it. And so we were like, yeah, that sounds great. But they after this interview, Robin, they absolutely will be knocking down that. Yeah, door. I mean, so I think. Thank also, you so much. You're probably going to open up your <laughs> Again, Rolodex. I'm, to I, I'm the Mr. Piv to their Dr. Pepper, but I mean, I'm just interested in these. No, things. you're I a vanguard. Up. You're absolutely a pioneer. Yeah, you, yeah, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, thank uh, you for being the elite. I'm a, I'm, a re, I'm a renegade of funk. What do you want me to say? <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Peter Podgurski and Brian Keithley of NPR Mageddon, which started off as a Twitter meme spoofing up, mocking up all manner of public media personalities and is now a budding 10-part noir spoof podcast series about a you know lost angeles as if the place isn't apocalyptic enough i love the sports teams and i have a lot of relatives in irangelis you know the encino part and everything but mm. uh, what is it about los angeles la noir and i notice you have a fascination with michael douglas noir i mean does that include up to and including uh falling down Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I did my senior thesis on the neo-noir films of Michael Douglas. I was a huge fan and am a huge fan of the, the neo-noir films from the 80s and 90s that kind of revisited some, some classic noir tropes from like the 40s and 50s. But 
yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we came out here for film school uh, to USC, uh, where we met, and uh, Los, or Los Angeles has always uh, played a big part, and I, I think in our imagination, we, we love it. It's, you know, it, it has traffic, and it's, it's uh, the price to live here is pretty high, but like, I mean, the price to live here is pretty high, but um, we, we love our city, so I think some of that uh, uh, pride comes through in, in the show as well. Because we, we do do a lot of uh, naming of places and you know, particular uh, areas around L.A. And a special hug to you guys. I'm going to let this show run long on pod. Of course, we only have 52 minutes on broadcast. But for all you wonderful listeners out there, this show does podcast across the board. You'll find podcatchers everywhere. NPR, Spotify, NPR One, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. These gents are so irresistible that I'm letting it run long. And I don't want you to hear a shortened version of this interview because I personally am very curious. At what point does this commercialized does this scale and i know that sounds like a mercenary question that's a good question but suppose it becomes a hit like is it it's not it's not cartoon network you're waiting for or showtime or somebody to serialize or commercialize this at what point does it cease becoming a labor of love and guys like i actually could do this we could do this for a living well um yeah i mean we are very motivated uh, it was such fun to record and work with all these talents and get this out and we're even loving the marketing hustle of like all the episodes we're about to release episode six we would love nothing more than to do season two of npr mageddon you know and we've already talked about that and what that would look like and we've also um written an animated pilot because we have a slightly different variation of it that we think would be ideal for like an adult swim type of more adult oriented um cartoon does that even exist anymore? Is that Paramount or was that somewhere in the Warner Brothers Discovery thing? There used to be more of an ecosystem for that. I wouldn't even know where to find it on streaming now. That's true. That's true. I mean, this this uh, media consolidation <laughs> it's, has been a little crazy. And I think, you know, um, with the podcast, uh, there's also been, you know, a period here of uh, the dumb money being gone, so to speak, and sort of like the golden golden era of the podcasting now entering sort of a dip of where companies buy each other and you know layoffs happen and the the budgets are cut. And indeed, NP NPR just had its biggest layoff since two thousand and eight. I mean, it pruned ten percent of staff, and that's that's apocalyptic inside of NPR. And then that big existential question. I mean, you know, we step away from the fun stuff. How do you make money in your creative passion, whether it's audio, animation, everything? There's so much content out there. There are people willing to just do it as a labor of love that are cross-subsidized by maybe wealthy parents or other day jobs that give them the creative latitude to do this. It's, again, it's at once exhilarating and terrifying. No, totally. And I think I think the podcasting is kind of going through something that maybe comic books did in the 90s. Like there was that whole speculator boom in, in comic books where people were just buying them and like it, it was like or they're like Beanie Babies or something. And I'm thinking NF NFTs too. That was pretty recent. Yeah, NFTs. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of things like that, but it doesn't mean the underlying product or the underlying thing like doesn't have value. And there isn't like I mean, there's just there's so many people in the world, right? Like you don't need to have that many. You don't have to have that many people be into you to have a sustainable model. Like, I think, you know, if... What is the principle? Like, have a thousand loyal fans. A thousand loyal fans can... can, Van Damme still makes action movies that people will watch on video. 
and there's still an audience for them because there's a loyalty to Van Damme action movies, right? Like you can go on Netflix right now, you'll find that you can go to this, on Van Damme's IMDb and you'll look at like what action movies he did did he do last year? He did like you know six or something. There's, there'll be a lot of them. I had no idea. Yeah, and so I think the audiences are getting nicher. They're more. It's more fractional. And I, I think the podcasting industry will sort of recognize and better be able to anticipate where the audience is. And I, th- I think it's still in kind of its infancy as far as how to find that audience, how to target that audience. So, you know, despite the contraction, the podcast listener numbers are still going north, right? They're still going up and up. So there's still a lot of opportunity despite some, you know, economic realities. Break this out for me for a minute. Suppose you were to release episodes one and two and it would go hugely hit. Can't you work with Amazon, which has a massive, you know, let's say Audible or Wondery or something like that to then say, you've tried the first two you definitely want to see where this is headed. Now we're putting it behind a paywall. Is there a way of metering it? Do you necessarily have to turn to the Patreons of the world? Again, I know this sounds a little crass and mercenary. And typically, whether I'm interviewing, you know, I had Silver Sun pickups in studio from Silver Lake, L.A., and they they didn't they got uncomfortable when I started talking about mm. business or a comedian who has to work at a pizza place in order to subsidize, you know, the the night shift hustle of working comedy clubs. I want to kind of grab that point of inception. Does it scale at a certain point or are we just all putting podcasts out there as a labor of love? Yeah, it totally scales. There's a musician uh, named uh, Ian Mackay who has this band Minor Threat in the 80s. It was like a straight edge band. And I saw him speak one time and he said, at the end of the day, my job was just selling plastic. You know, I put music on plastic and I sold that plastic. And in the digital age, he's not selling plastic anymore, right? So that's so that becomes a little bit of an issue, right? So like, because digital stuff, is, it isn't actually property. It's, it can be infinitely replicated, right? And so I think a way, instead of doing the Patreon or, and, or doing the paywall thing, it could just be like the product model or something like, like you want a t-shirt? I'll sell you a T-shirt. I, in some ways, like maybe maybe podcast is a way is a big long way to sell you a T-shirt or the something. The long game. We're the playing the game. long game. So like, are all podcasters T-shirt salesmen at the end of the day? Maybe, right? But that would be a way, right? Oh, we were for a period we were mattress salesmen, right? Absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, sit and sleep. <laughs> Close us out. What are your predictions? What are your aspirations? I I love meeting you in this way. I I just didn't know behind the curtain there were these two starving, striving artists working the scene. I th- again, I thought you were just a couple of spitballing, you know, NPR associate producers that were having some fun in the lunchroom. We we did have one heck of a plot twist going from Photoshop to uh, to podcasting, but I think I think the community, you know, the legion of NPR uh, folks have have embraced us and, you know, the response has been been overwhelming. We I think we've touched a lot of people's lives and it's it's been a whole lot of fun. You were listening to the gents behind NPR Mageddon, Brian Keithley and Peter Podgurski. So much more multi-textured than the meme and spoofs on, on Twitter and Insta and everything. Can you give us the particulars about where everybody can find the series? Is it on all the podcatchers? Yeah, it's on all the podcatchers, and you can just type in nprmageddon.com slash listen, and you'll be able to get there. It was a joy finally having you on and seeing the totality of your existence in 360 degrees. Please do come back on. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Robin. This Thanks, has been Robin. very fun. My pleasure. 
Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast, of course, to NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. A shout-out to our radio listeners across the great Commonwealth. Member station Radio IQ, WVTF News. My social media handle is Full D Radio, and you can catch me weekly on both Here and Now on NPR and MSNBC. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.